As Christians, we have to stop looking through the, the broken lens of culture. It's always going to distort our view. We have to constantly look through the breakthrough filter of Christ. And when we do that, we see people differently, we see situations differently, and we act and react differently. I'm Jim Daly, and that's Ryan Bomberger, who is so thoughtful in his messaging and who has a great love for the Lord. He's going to give us uh, some more clarity and context on important issues today and help us to respond to the culture respectfully while representing the truth. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I'm glad you're listening, and I look forward to sharing an intriguing discussion with Ryan, who's a really sharp thinker and influential young man. Uh, With Sanctity of Human Life Week and Martin Luther King Jr. Day just around the corner, we'll be touching on some of the hot-button topics, including abortion, civil rights, social justice, LGBT issues, and the spiritual blindness that's causing harm to so many people today. The reason for the Refocus podcast is to help you understand important issues embedded in the culture, but more importantly, to help you be a good listener to what people around you are saying, and then when it's appropriate to give some input, to do so with grace and kindness. As Christians, we're aiming for the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think this is a big challenge for the church because, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line of good and evil cuts through every human heart. It's not them against us. It's us against us. And I think in that regard, I can vacillate at times because there are those moments when I just uh, want to protest. But the point of that is we can fall so easily to our fleshly motivation. Man, I feel it all the time. Uh, I know what the Lord would want me to respond with. And then I'm like, but Lord, he's really irritating me. Uh, Paul in the New Testament writes, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I should do, I don't do. And I am so thankful that Paul wrote that into scripture. It's almost like we're constantly facing a decision between the spirit and the flesh in good and evil. And guess what? We are. As Christians, we need to be informed and then also represent the fruit of God's spirit. That's what it means to be his ambassador. I remember a great example from my friend, Pastor John Burke, who said he walked his dog around his rather diverse neighborhood, and then he began praying for his neighbors and getting to know them. And he lives in Austin, and Uh, you know, it's quite a diverse neighborhood. And he and his wife invited uh, the neighbors to barbecues and things like that. And it opened up doors to great conversations. And actually, he's been able to lead many of those neighbors to a relationship in Christ. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, connecting with and caring for others uh, more than ourselves. So we're putting those emotions aside, the need to win a debate, and inviting somebody over for a barbecue just to have relationship with somebody. That's how the doors are opened. Uh, Ryan Bomberger is a podcaster, author, speaker, and the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation. He's also author of the book, Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong, and uh, I'd like to just get into it. I hope you'll lean in for this interesting conversation with Ryan Bomberger on Refocus with Jim Daly. Ryan, you're from a diverse family yourself. Slightly, uh, yeah. Yeah, slightly, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I experienced some of that in foster care, but describe the family you're with and how did it help you to better understand a diverse world? 
Oh yeah, my family of fifteen is definitely <laughs> we we don't look alike at all. We're we're white and black, white and black mixed. Uh, Native American, Vietnamese. Some of us have disabilities. Two of my brothers are albino, so that brings, you know, wow. legal blindness there. And so, just a real mixture. And the other part of the mixture, when we talk about diversity, is the diversity of experience. So I've had siblings who've come from some horrific backgrounds: yeah. physical abuse, sexual abuse. One sibling who wanted so badly to be adopted into a family that wanted a girl that he decided to dress up like a girl, mm-hmm. and that cause some lasting uh, effects on him. So growing up in a family like that and and having two parents who, who love Jesus and that natural flow of loving Jesus, loving people, they loved us so well and really brought us on this journey of wholeness and healing, a lot of us. And so when I talk about diverse family, there's so many more dynamics to diversity well, than incredible. our skin color. But yeah. it's so amazing God brought you through all that yeah. and knowing where he was going to place you in the future. Yeah. I mean, nobody can compete with that. You've been there, you've lived it, and you've seen it in action. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen love transform what seemed hopeless yeah. over and over again. And I guess that's the point, isn't it? I mean, but it's hard to do that. Your parents had to be exceptional, seemingly exceptional people to open up their home, adopt a bunch of different kids that were at all different stages of difficulty, right. and to bring them in and simply love them. But that is kind of the message, right? It's what the Lord is saying for us to do. Yeah, and my parents would not consider themselves exceptional. (laughs) They would say, which is amazing. We're just people who follow God's calling. See, my mom actually grew up with an alcoholic father, and so my mom was placed in a children's home for one year. So it was out of her own brokenness that Mm. this passion for loving others who were broken and who were discarded, that's where that came from at the age of five. So. Yeah, I, I think they're exceptional. I think my father is no longer with us. I, I lost my father a year from last January, and that was mm-hmm. the most that was the most incredible pain that I've ever felt. Um, losing such an incredible man who who loved God, who loved us, and really set for me what a, a model for what a husband is, yeah. a model for what a father is. But yeah, our family, there's so many stories of of God's transformation, which is why when I look at all the cultural issues and all the the spiritual battles we've lived some of those out in our family and i saw the way that my parents and their faith really directed them from many moments of of tragedy into moments of triumph yeah you know i'm thinking about the way the culture marginalizes dads and um you know my dad was an alcoholic he wasn't a great dad he was gone by the time i was five but he did give me a sense that he loved me and cared about me and all that. I know it sounds ironic, but I think it's one of the reasons I'm reasonably healthy today is at least I had that, him running his hand through my hair saying, hey, you're special, I love you, I remember that. And it made a difference. But it's equally powerful to see the influence of dads in the family and our lack of understanding of it. We love mom, we know mom's love is there, Dad's that wild card, though, and he ends up playing a fierce role in us being healthy or unhealthy emotionally, spiritually. And I want to make a comment and get your response to it. I think it was Tucker Carlson, after having a sociologist on, talking about the, in, the impact of fatherhood on a family. And he said after that guest, well, the country's kind of come down to two types of people, those who love their dads and those who hate their dads. 
And I just thought, what a mic drop statement that is. Because even in these spheres that we operate in, meeting with people from the LGBT community, meeting people from uh, Black Lives Matter, there is a lot of hostility toward fathers that let them down. It's not, you know, it's a pretty simplistic but fairly accurate thing to assess that when dads fail, bad things come from it. And I think our culture is reaping the whirlwind of, of those decisions. Do you agree or disagree? I do, and that's why it's so hard for me to see all the celebration of all things LGBT. So when someone comes out of the closet, what they're ignoring is what happened in the closet? What, yeah, what are the what, origins yeah. of some of that confusion and brokenness? I have a, a specific situation in a church that we were part of where the young girls were being abused by their drug-addicted parents and the father in particular. And, you know, the social services, as always, fail to actually protect those children. I shouldn't say as always, too often, fail to protect those children. And a year, year and a half later, the one, one girl who was middle school age, all of a sudden came out as, as lesbian. And so she's wearing all the, you know, all the rainbow gear. And then she's being celebrated. And she, she's the type of individual who will be celebrated by the world, but they don't know they don't know the, the the trauma that she went through, the trauma that was brought on by her her father. So a lot of this is like yeah, I think of BLM. Uh, the the three women who found it, two out of the three women are, are are lesbian. I'm not saying that every situation is because of family trauma. Not every situation, but a lot of it is. But if you're a detective on the hunt for you know the culprit, right? This would be the place you'd look. Oh, Typically, yes. was there a dad involved in the home and right. was it healthy or unhealthy? Exactly. And that's amazing to me. And again, that points to the social science that we were talking about, that when family is functioning well, healthy fruit comes from it. Right. And when it's not, you get the culture that we have today. Let me, let me also mention our duty and responsibility as Christians. You know, there's a lot of failure in Christian leadership, too. Pastors, national leaders, um, it's usually three things. I've talked to my own team at Focus about it. You know, it's pride, sex, or money. And it just seems to be the snare that the enemy of our soul always gets us with. It's one of the three. So identify your weakness and then buttress yourself and get accountability and talk to your closest two, three friends and make sure they're aware of what your weakness is. Right. And, uh, but, but speak to that idea too. God is never going to let us down. God's people will let us down. Um, but it's because they're not healthy in certain ways as well. We're only fragile human beings and we sin, but speak to that idea of living authentically so that the power of God can do its work. You know, free will is a very powerful thing. God gives us that and we tend to confuse that with God imposing his will on us. You know, I had such a hard time as a teenager with church, and I would, you know, in the news, you would hear about these televangelists falling off of their whatevers and, and doing crazy things. I thought, oh. for me, I allowed that to define who God was. Well, mm-hmm. these people aren't real. Then God mustn't be real. And we do that so often in our lives where we see failure in, in humans that are close to us, especially if they claim to be Christian, and then we say, well, God failed because that human being failed. Well, we're always going to fail. I mean, we're, we're terrible representations. We're supposed to be the ambassadors, you know, Christ's ambassadors, absolutely. But, 
but we fail all the time. Mm. But it's really remarkable when, you know, I think of people and several friends of mine who come from some horrific circumstances. And when you see them embracing a God who, who loves them, who is the reliable one, unlike human beings, and to have seen their lives changed, it's really a remarkable thing because it, it's easy to reject God. It's easy to, to reject and to scoff and, and all that, but it's really hard to say, I'm going to put my faith in the Father, especially for those who didn't have one. You yeah. know, I, I had my father, you know, chose to love those that many other men abandoned. And so I saw, no, not everyone has this, but I had an earthly father who loved us, who was devoted to us, who was involved all the time. I had a great example of a father. But I also have friends who didn't have good fathers at all. And to see them embracing, you know, Abba, you know, our father, it's really a remarkable thing. Because you think, well, how would they even have been able to do that? And this is where our free will comes in. We have to choose. Mm. No matter our trauma, no matter the circumstances, it's still incumbent upon us to actually choose. Do I trust you, Lord? Or am I going to give it all up? and embrace the lie. It's sad because there's so much pain in, in that pursuit of chasing the lie. I mean, it doesn't deliver. And it doesn't. And it really deprives people of understanding their God-given purpose in the end. Yeah. We all have that God-given purpose, which is why I love Psalm 139. He knit us together in our mother's womb, that he knew our days before they ever came to be. And we miss out on that incredible design, that incredible purpose when we keep rejecting the designer. And I know I have in my own life, I decided I was gonna take some detours. Uh, that didn't end up well, that didn't, those are terrible detours <laughs> I decided to take. But that's, that's what happens when you reject um, the father who created us. And so I just wanna encourage people to speak that life and that hope into others who are in traumatic situations. There's no situation that's hopeless, there's, there's none. I think we as, even as Christians, we, we look at him like, that's just impossible. You know, that, there's no way that that person can rise up. It's, it's just too despairing. That's not a biblical way of looking at any situation. Yeah. People can well, grab a hold of the truth. Yeah. And I love that psalm that says, you know, he's close to the brokenhearted and yeah. saves those crushed in spirit. That's the kind of God I would want to serve. Yeah. One who's compassionate toward the brokenhearted. Yeah. All right, Ryan, you're an author, a speaker, founder, a podcaster, a producer, but you call yourself the factivist. Did you copyright that, by the way? We're working on trademarking that <laughs> and factivism because we have a slogan that it's says so less good. activism, more factivism, and that's what we do. So what's a factivist all about? <laughs> well, the truth, really. I mean, people try to, I guess, offer different definitions of what facts are. Um, but facts can't be facts without the truth. And so we're really passionate about bringing context, which then brings clarity to these culture-shaping issues. You know, that's one of the big things for me. It seems like spiritually, you know, you're trying to, as a Christian, you're trying to discern what the dimensions are, what kind of environment we're in. And if you talk to people who don't subscribe to what we subscribe to, it's hard to have a discussion about what is a fact. Right. That's different. I think there used to be kind of basic truth that we all agreed on. But now it, you, you don't have that fundamental truth. Right. So what's happened there? It's, I mean, this is what happens when we deviate from the truth, as in capital T, truth. We can't discern 
which things are facts. And, you know, as Christians, we should be able to fuse the evidential with the emotional. We are emotional beings. I understand that. But we can't avoid, you know, basic truths. And we do that so, I mean, we see that in our culture right now. We do that so often now because we just want to be affirmed and to affirm. But what exactly are we affirming? Yeah. When we're denying basic, you know, for instance, basic biological facts, male, female, boy and girl, uh, we think that we're upholding somebody, but we're actually aiding and abetting the continued brokenness yeah. and the embrace of that lie. You know, it, it's interesting you say it in that way, because I think some of the folks that, again, don't have the beliefs that we have about the Lord and about a Christian worldview, um, but some that I meet, they feel and express themselves very sincerely. And to me, what happens is they're trying to fix this problem, and the solution creates more of a problem. And it's like they don't get that. Um, do you understand what I'm... Oh, well, I absolutely. Mean, you know, let's go after poverty, spend lots of money, and we still have poverty. Because you're not going to do away with poverty, because poverty is not the issue, it's a symptom. And so in that regard, I mean, how do we take these well-meaning people and try to help them see something differently? Yeah. And, and as someone who grew up on a farm and had to pull uh, thousands and thousands of weeds, you could pull off the top of the weeds and you're going to have a heck of a time because it's going to continue to grow back. We don't ever get to the root of things. We can never address and really you know, deal with with that problem, with that issue. And that's what we're always doing. We're always pulling at the tops instead of getting to the, the root of things. And as long as humankind exists, yes, this, this sin nature will always exist. It doesn't mean that we don't work to reduce and to try to eliminate things, but we can't do it if we can't even accept some fundamental biblical truths. Yeah. And we're going to cover some of that over the next few minutes, but, right. uh, you, you know, let's go with culture. Culture shouts for diversity and equality. And it seems, again, when you're in that Christian space, everybody gets a dose of that, but the Christian group, uh, we don't get that kind of same expression or embrace of tolerance. Like they'll tolerate everything but us. Right. Well, it's that's the, the deception and what I consider the, the cult of a secular perspective on inclusion and diversity. They don't have a biblical perspective on what that means. And so, you know, those who are the, the most self-proclaimed tolerant ones are the least tolerant toward those who hold a biblical worldview. I'm really used to that, whether on college campuses or in other types of events. They don't want to hear my point of view because diversity is only so deep. You've been in that spot. I've not. I haven't spoken at a college campus, but watching those <laughs> conservatives who do, some believers, some not. Uh, ben Shapiro is uh, Jewish, uh, but there are a lot of Christians that do. There's Christian student movements that try to get onto campus that they get shouted down. Tell us that experience. I mean, what it's like. I mean, number one, you're biracial. Right. And, you know, so that has been a part of your life. And then also a conservative. <gasps> do they exist? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's very interesting, the dynamic on on campuses. I've spoken in Harvard, Princeton, University of Notre Dame, Penn State, some Christian colleges, which quite honestly have been some of the worst. Yeah. Uh, case in, in point, way? Yeah. Wheaton. And in <laughs> Can what I just way? call them out? Yeah. Wheaton, because I didn't realize before going how beholden they are to critical race theory and how much they have embraced the Black Lives Matter movement. It's one thing to say Black Lives Matter, 100% absolutely Black Lives Matter, because we're all created in the image of God. But to embrace a movement that is actively hostile to Christianity 
is baffling, especially for an evangelical Christian institution. But I delivered a presentation called Black Lives Matter in and out of the womb. And I was actually giving them manifesto points from the Black Lives Matter website and showing how it is, is hostile to Christianity. And I gave specific points. But uh, I was smeared by the, <laughs> the administration and several uh, student leaders, many of whom didn't even attend the presentation, saying that I made students and staff and faculty of color feel unheard, underrepresented, and unsafe on campus. So coming from a biblical perspective, from a grace-filled, uh, fact-based perspective, makes people feel unsafe. But this is what happens on, I mean, that happened on a Christian campus. Harvard was pretty bad too, but not actually as bad as Wheaton. But the problem is so many students on these campuses are taught to fear instead of to think. Yeah. And it's a really terrifying thought. Wow that this is what's happening on these college campuses. It's supposed to be, you know, education and, you know, free thinking, but it's not. If you deviate from that, um, you know, you're, you're demonized. And Christian groups, in fact, sometimes they were afraid to promote my event prior to, or at least <laughs> they would wait till the day before the event because they were fearful of the, you know, the pushback and the, you know, the hostility. So when you others. have, a, yeah, when you have a group like that, and I'd say college campus is a great example where they're expressing this view of tolerance until they encounter something they don't tolerate. Right. I mean, do they not, intellectually, do they not even see the contradiction of that? Well, it's a spiritual blindness, though. So when you, when you talk about, well, why aren't you employing critical thinking? When you have a spiritual blindness, it doesn't matter because you can't even get to the critical thinking because there is such an inability to see what actually is. And yeah. so when this is drilled into you day after day after day, and you know around you, you get demonized or you get affirmed depending on which position you take, you have a lot of young people who are just afraid to actually live out and speak out their core convictions. Let me uh, press you, I don't, what was your degree in? I can't remember. Neither can I, um, <laughs> it was so long ago. No, I actually have a degree in marketing, a BS from, um, which is, BS, I, I say, actually stands for bogus stuff. But anyway, that that from Messiah College, and then I have okay, my law master's. is not it. That's why, because <laughs> right. this next question I, I really wanted to ask you about the Fourteenth Amendment seems to be this uh, truck-sized amendment that they tuck everything into, equal protection clause, etc. I mean, from it, that's been the basis for Roe v. Wade. It's been the basis for so many of the social egregious decisions that we've had. What's your take on the 14th Amendment and how it's misused? I think it's one of the most abused amendments in American history. Here you had an amendment, part of the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which finally set people of my complexion free. You know, 13th abolished slavery, and then 14th Amendment, which said no person can be deprived of life or liberty um, without due process of law. Uh, no state is allowed to deprive an individual of that. And yet, an amendment that actually recognized the humanity of people of my complexion was then used by Harry Blackman, who was the Supreme Court Justice, who invoked the 14th Amendment over and over again to justify the killing of another group of people deemed less than human. And then, of course, we hear recently with President Joe Biden, who said the 14th Amendment assures the right to abortion. Well, of course it doesn't. It doesn't assure the right to abortion. In fact, it says the opposite. Correct. No yeah. person should be, can be deprived of life. And without life, you cannot have liberty. So it is such an abused amendment. But yet, you know, those in, in politics who want to use it to justify pretty much anything, you know, 
gay marriage was also used at Burgerfell versus Hodges. They also invoked the 14th Amendment. But like you said, it's like a big old tractor trailer with all kinds of trailers attached right. to it. Here, take on your issue. We got it. 14th Amendment and, says so. Yeah, and they can just shape a judicial philosophy around that, and then we have to suffer for that right. in the case of abortion for 50 years. Let, let's get into abortion a little bit, because uh, I was talking to the lieutenant governor of Virginia, Winsome Sears, a delightful person. Oh, yes. She, too, does not exist in some people's minds because she's, again, she's a black woman who's conservative. She's right. from Jamaica. It's unfortunate because I said, when are you running for president? And she said, I can't. I'm foreign born. I went, oh. But she was saying to me, and only she, and perhaps you could say this, uh, it's harder for a white male to say this, but she said to me, you know, Margaret Sanger's, uh, and she was the founder of Planned Parenthood, but Margaret Sanger's vision of eugenics to uh, take out the minority communities because they could be a drain on social services and the taxpayer right. burden. Think of that. And we need to eliminate more and more of the minority children for uh, the country to do better. I mean, just yeah. think of that thought. And then she said to me, oh, Planned Parenthood has been far more effective in killing black babies than the KKK ever was. Think of that thought. I mean, that's breathtaking. Facts right there. I mean, there's so many. First of all, Margaret Sang was a broken individual who believed that the way to eliminate suffering was to eliminate the sufferer. And she had a very warped view of humanity. It wasn't just against poor blacks that she wanted to eliminate or reduce the, the existence of, but it was of you know women who had children out of wedlock. It was those that they considered dysgenic or feeble-minded, which we all know today would probably include <clears throat> most of Congress. But that's a whole other, that's a whole other story. But Margaret Sanger had a really broken worldview on humanity. She did not understand how to elevate humanity. She certainly advocated uh, how to eliminate humanity. And when it comes to like Planned Parenthood today, the number one killer of black lives, literally they kill more black lives in two weeks than the KKK killed in a century. So I mean, there's so there's so many wow. ties in. I mean, there were, you know, KKK members in the Planned Parenthood original board. Lothrop Stoddard was one of them. I never knew that. Yes. So when people wow. say, oh, that's such a stretch, why would you even compare it? Well, because we're not the ones who actually brought on KKK members to the board. Margaret Sanger did. We're not the ones who spoke before the KKK. Margaret Sanger did. So, and this is in her own autobiography. But when we talk about abortion and race, we have such a surreal conversation today where they're saying, I mean, Planned Parenthood will say, black women, you are better off aborting your child than to go through pregnancy. And that's being celebrated. At the same time, we hear everyone decrying systemic racism. Yeah. But what is systemic racism? It's a you know, government-funded entity that disproportionately kills black lives. Planned Parenthood kills 360 every single day. 360 black lives every day taken out by abortion clinics. Yes. When, you, when you think of that, um, and you think of the grieving heart of God, I mean, now we'll take this up a notch because, of course, God was not an Anglo-Saxon, right? He was born in the Middle East. He's a Middle Easterner. He's Jewish. And you look at God's perspective over all of humanity and what seemed like a growing area for us, getting better in the area of racial relationships. It felt like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. set a great high bar. It's not going to be the color of your skin. It's going to be the content of your character. Who couldn't? And Christians, most of all, say amen to that, right? That's exactly what it should be. It feels, though, Ryan, like we, we've nosedived. We were climbing to that great calling, and then all of a sudden, the last few years, 
BLM and all the other things. And maybe there's that white perspective that we're not seeing. You know, I'm white. I may not see it. I may have a blind spot. But something is cascading us downwardly now, it feels like. Well, yes. I mean, BLM in particular, they've actually reversed the whole character over over color of skin uh, to yeah, where right. now it's reversed right it's just color of skin and character doesn't matter whatsoever um, and, and it's a race-based thing I mean in Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech uh, where do we go from here really brilliant I'm actually sad that I never heard these words growing up because you, you always hear the I have a dream speech which is right. incredible and powerful but his speech in his speech where do you go from here he talks about how you know let us be dissatisfied until that day that no one will shout white power, when no one will shout black power, but we will all shout God's power and human power. How have we gone so far from that? We have veered so far off from that to where now we're so fixated by the hue of skin, so quick to judge somebody because of the color of their skin, thinking that we know them. And again, separating ourselves, dividing ourselves by something that God created for us to enjoy and to celebrate, Hmm. the beautiful hues of our skin. It saddens me that we are in this place where we don't understand a kingdom diversity. God is a God of diversity, and it's being so perverted and distorted to actually separate ourselves. Yeah, I saw a stat that something like uh, in 1958, only 36% of white people said that they, they would vote for a black president. By 1996 or 2006, I can't remember, uh, 96% said, oh, they'd vote for a black president. The point is that that's incredible movement right. over a 50, 60 year period. Right. I was born in the 60s, so it's almost my lifetime to see that kind of movement in people. That's a good thing. Absolutely. And the same thing with interracial marriage. You know, we had anti-miscegenation laws in the United States, laws that prevented people from marrying of different colors. I mean, my marriage to my wife <laughs> would have been illegal in the state of Virginia if it weren't for Loving versus Virginia, the case that went to the Supreme Court to say, um, you can't stop people from marrying because one person's white, one person's black. And so there's been so much. I mean, you look at the, the 50s when Gallup did some polling and it said 3% of people would have approved of black-white marriages. And now today it's well over 95%. So it's, it has significantly changed. And what, what really grieves my heart is that we hear even some Christian leaders pretending that there hasn't been significant social change, you know, sometimes acting like it's still 1954 (laughs) with some of the rhetoric. And if we don't acknowledge that, I feel like we diminish and we demean the sacrifices of those who came before us, white, black, and every human between, who fought for this kind of equality, for this kind of heart change that we have experienced as a nation. Let's, let's go to the social justice side a little bit, because that's another area of conflict. Uh, you know, as Christians, I think uh, social justice sounds right. Yeah. Who doesn't want to stand for social justice? Who doesn't want to stand for justice? Right. But even that area seems to have been corrupted, that it's not really justice that we're going after. We're going after division mm-hmm. again. The problem is where the social justice deviates from a biblical understanding of justice. So I know some people use the term terminology biblical justice because right now so much of social justice requires the stripping away of rights from one group in order to give it to another. Mm. And so it's really problematic for me to embrace a social justice movement. And I appreciate the hearts of, of those who want, who perceive wrong and perceive injustice. And they want to do something about it. But when you don't have a biblical foundation 
and how to pursue that, you get what we have right now in this social justice movement. Things that are so contrary to scripture, things that are that Christians should not be embracing. I mean, even just look at the LGBT movement and how do we, we, we don't rectify the wrong of, for instance, you know, the churches being silent about homosexuality and, and the cruelty sometimes of some churches toward those struggling with same-sex attraction to this, you know, swing to this whole other side where you embrace everything and anything right. that the ideology espouses. So social justice is really problematic for Christians, especially those who don't have a biblical worldview or are not biblically literate because it's easy to be sucked into the emotion of it all. Well, and that's a, another byproduct, I think, is just becoming silent and not saying anything because right. we don't know how to say something right. or we don't feel comfortable saying something. So how would you, a couple of insights for people who maybe just quiet down rather than speak up, how do you go about managing speaking up in a kind of a hostile environment when you're saying something that eh, some people may not appreciate? It's not easy. I mean, courage is never easy. Um, we feel so often, especially with social media, that we, we have to have you know the whole backing of hundreds of people or thousands of people. But courage doesn't need a crowd. It just needs a conscience. And as Christians, we have to remember, we have to distinguish between <laughs> loving every human being and loving every human doing. They're not the same. Hmm. And when we love every human being, we're going to be courageous enough to actually speak those truths. I, oftentimes I will delineate the difference between love and tolerance. We live in a culture that keeps telling us, you know, tolerance, tolerance, and they elevate this as, as if it's some great virtue. But love lifts people out of their circumstances. Tolerance keeps people where they are mm. and pretends there are no circumstances. And so when we're silent, we're just being tolerant, basically. We're not loving that person enough to be part of that, that, that change that lifts them out of their circumstances. And so that's, for me, I, I want to understand that, that huge difference. I want to love somebody else. And it's not, it's not easy. I mean, we've been sued. We've been firebombed out of lectures. We've, been, we've received death threats. But it's how we communicate that love that's really important. Or I should say, as you mentioned, we should be communicating, period. <laughs> right. And I think that's where I wanted to go. The, the attitude in which we communicate is really critical, yeah. and that is a distinctive. I, I would say on the tolerance side, I think one of the draw factors for that tolerance idea amongst Christians, it's easy. It's easy to be quiet. It's easy to sit tight, and it doesn't put you at risk under the banner of tolerance. You can let people do and think and speak the way that they want to. And they're asking a lot of us to curb our expression, right. right? And I think for the most part, they're winning at that. So for us to be engaged in loving somebody, to say, well, wait a minute, I don't think that's God's design for marriage, and here's the reason why, takes courage, back to your point. And I think I think that's where we in the Christian community tend to, uh, some tend to fall over a little because we're tripping up between being kind and being loving, and those things aren't necessarily running at the same speed. Right. Well, especially when the word kind has been redefined. Look at all the schools yeah. and the, the, the sessions, the training that goes on on how to be kind. But being yeah. kind means you embrace all of these things. Especially me. <laughs> right? Right. right. Yeah. But that's right. true. I mean, that is the definition. So for young people now, I mean, I've got two boys that are 
uh, in their 20s, and uh, this is a tough area to navigate. Uh, I think on the life issue, totally in, they believe it. When you talk about marriage, Dad, you know what? Our age group, we don't, we don't talk about that much. We just, you know, keep our head down. I mean, that's not good. It's not because it has all kinds of, of consequences, and we're seeing that. It wasn't just an issue of two people who love each other being able to marry. I mean, if that's the parameter, then anybody can get married, which right. is why, you know, in the Obergefell versus Hodges case, you know, they presented, well, what about the situation of three people? What about the situation of somebody who's even in the same family? Yeah, they which can't they call it. No, but so if the whole hashtag love is love, then you have to accept all these things. But it's so much more than that. It's now, it's now morphed into what's happening in our public schools where they're teaching you know, critical race theory and they're teaching elements of queer theory and forcing you know, pronouns. Um, <laughs> they're forcing parts of speech on, on people that you know, defy basic biology. It's so much more than just, oh, it's a marriage issue and we're, we're libertarian about this and we're just gonna move forward on life. No, every area of our lives are impacted by it. This is this is so much more. And so for a generation to say this isn't our fight, right should always be your fight. Huh. And I'm not talking the political right. I'm talking about biblical right yeah. should always be our fight because we love people enough to not allow them to go down that dangerous path. Well, that is really good. You, you mentioned a lawsuit. I do want to come back to that, the NAACP <laughs> lawsuit. I mean, that had to be a bit of a shocker to receive a letter from their lawyer saying whatever it said. Yes, cease and desist. You may not use our name. <laughs> what, what were they contesting? It was it was a shock. I still remember actually sitting there in front of my computer, and I and I called my wife Bethany. I'm like, Bethany, come in here. Um, we just got a letter from the NAACP, and they're warning us if we don't remove this article from our website and from the the news site that we had it published on LifeNews.com, uh, that they're going to sue us. And so it was all about an article that I wrote in response to NAACP. Um, denouncing our billboard campaign in the San Francisco Bay Area, where we placed 60 billboards that said Black and Beautiful, Too Many Aborted.com, and the campaign highlighted the disproportionate impact of abortion in the Black community, where, for instance, in New York City, more Black babies are aborted than born alive, talked about resources that are available, talked about the history of eugenics and Planned Parenthood. And so we were denounced. The NAACP official out of uh, Los Angeles said that it was horribly racist and gave the false impression that Planned Parenthood kills Black babies. Well, they kill... 345,000 babies, black, white, and every hue in between. So being the factivist that I am, I wrote an article, and I entitled the National Association for the Abortion of Colored People, and they didn't like it. They didn't like that. No. So they own acronyms even now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, they're a civil rights organization. They didn't like free speech. Yeah. And so it, it then led us into a two-year battle. We were represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. Never thought it would even go to court. It was so absurd the thought that they could actually stop us from parroting their name. But it went to court, and we lost at the first level. Wow. The first federal judge who was a lifetime member of the NAACP. And, and the crazy thing is they sued us for trademark inf infringement, dilution, and confusion, saying that we were in an article that was highly critical of the NAACP, that we were pretending to be 
the NAACP. Made no sense. So in, I'm sitting in the witness stand, or the witness box, whatever you call it, and the judge kept calling them the NCAA. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> who's confusing the public as to what NAACP stands for? Are you serious? For? That's but funny. We, we lost. He said that we are not allowed to even, we're not allowed to write or even invoke the NAACP's name online, in print. It took another year and a half for the appeals court to overturn that egregious ruling. And so we want a significant free speech case against the NAACP. Ryan, so much of the cultural discussion is around um, assumption. Assumption that if you're an older white guy, you're going to be Republican. If you're African-American, you're Democrat, and right. both only vote one direction. It, it, it's interesting to watch some of these leaders now emerging, like Winston Sears, the lieutenant governor of Virginia. There's some congressional races involving black women, particularly, running as Republicans. Right. And the pulse that you get watching the news is, and even some of the journalists are saying, they don't really exist. They're an enigma. They're oxymoronic was a word that was used. I mean, that to me is su such an offense that somehow black people can't have an opinion about the way things should run. Because that's what politics is. Yes. And, they, you know, if you want lower taxes, you don't want to take a baby's life in the womb, then somehow that's only for white people. That seems odd to me. It's, it's all of it's so bizarre. I... This, this whole assumption that the color of your skin denotes your moral convictions, it, it's crazy. Unfortunately, we see the reality of the, the, the majority, for instance, of black Americans who do vote for one particular party, for the Democrat Party. And a lot of that has been fashioned out of disappointment with both parties over the years. For instance, you know, the, the anti-lynching law, which Republicans and introduced the bill, um, but then didn't follow through. And so there were other disappointments. And then you had FDR come in with the Great Society and, hey, you didn't get the 40 acres and a mule, but here we get all the, you'll get all this, all kinds of broken promises from a government. So there's, a, there's a, just a mess of dynamics mm. that have gone into present day. But then you look at news media, social media that keeps echoing ridiculous lies. You know, I, I don't exist as a, a brown conservative, I apparently don't exist. And if I do, I'm an Uncle Tom, which is funny to me because if you call somebody who is black an Uncle Tom, please read Uncle Tom's Cabin because if you're gonna call me or accuse me of being someone who would sacrifice his own life so that others would be set free, yes, I'm an Uncle Tom for life. But there is this mentality that you don't wanna be demeaned like that in the black community, you can't be on the side of conservatives. You can't think from a biblical worldview and actually align your biblical worldview with the party platform. Mm -hmm. I, I will say no political party is our salvation. No. Only Jesus is our salvation. But there are, as Christians, our, our civic duty is to align our biblical worldview with our, our voting. Yeah. And I don't see that happening in a lot of, whether it's black or white, but disproportionately, I don't feel like a lot of black Christians who tend to be very conservative in, in their ideals don't vote that way. Yeah. And it's it's voting against your own self-interest. If, if nothing else, it's voting against, I mean, the Democrat Party celebrates abortion. They celebrate abortions in the black community as reproductive justice and are now saying that it's actually unsafe for black children to be adopted. Like, what are you talking? You're pro-abortion. Well, and so if they can't be adopted and you're advocating abortion, what what's the outcome? 
And so there, there's a lot of voting that's so, so hostile to black communities' interests. Yeah. So really, we, that's why policy platforms are important. I encourage people, read every party's, each party, there are only two. I mean, I know there are other parties right, out there, right, but right. Yeah. really, two, in reality, there are only two that, that are you know, legitimate. Um, but read the, policy, the, the party platforms. Yeah. And then th- pray about it. God, how do you want me to, how can I reconcile my faith with my voting? We have to struggle with that. You know, one of the things, too, just the observation of Jesus on earth, you know, we do have recorded time with him and things that he said and things he shared with the apostles and taught them. But you look at that, he didn't spend a lot of time in this arena. I mean, he didn't even respond to Herod when asked questions. Um, He told people to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. But he, he didn't. And, and he wasn't in a democracy, I get it, or, uh, you know, republic. I guess he was kind of in a republic, wasn't he? Yeah. With the Senate of, the, oh. of Rome. But he didn't engage it directly. He didn't kind of say, you, you would think that the Lord would say, let me go talk to Caesar. We'll get this all straightened out. Right. You know, let's go right to the source. Let's go to D.C. Let's sort it all out. Show him the light, and it'll be done. And we'll protest. But for some reason, God didn't. He chose to speak through and with common people to change the hearts of people, right. to have them do the right deeds. He didn't, he didn't go to Caesar. I find that really fascinating. But that's contrary to liberation theology, uh, black liberation theology that sees Jesus as a political revolutionary. He first and foremost was here to reconcile us with God. Yeah. He came to rescue us. That's called savior theology, which the whole anti-racism movement rejects. And it's it's so frustrating when you when you see Christians, especially embracing an anti. Of course, we're against racism. Racism is a sin, but so many Christians embracing an anti-racism movement that rejects. In fact, Ibram X. Kendi, the the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, says that he rejects Savior theology. Well, and he says, you know, white man came up with Savior theology. No, actually, God came up with Savior theology. Yeah. It's yeah. how we are able to be adopted into the family of God, and so. As Christians, there's there's some digging that we have to do. The politics, politics is not everything, but politics is a whole lot of something that that directs or dictates whether or not we have the religious freedom that we have, for instance, in this country. And I just don't think enough Christians take politics seriously enough or take their faith seriously enough to actually align their faith with how they're voting. We, we have to do better yeah. in actually living out our, our faith in every arena. It's not just a private thing. It's deeply a public thing. Otherwise, God wouldn't have said, go ye in, into all the world and preach the gospel. That's going out into the public and preaching the gospel, whether you're speaking it or living it. Whew, this is so good from Ryan Bomberger. And stay with us as we're about to get into more discussion about LGBT issues and the sexual revolution that's right in front of us. But I want to pause here for a moment to let you know about a couple of video series we've produced on racial unity and another on critical race theory. 
Conversations about this complex issue involving race can be difficult. Unfortunately, our culture and even some within the church have embraced solutions to racism that are inconsistent with Scripture. I'm recommending a helpful video series featuring racial unity advocate Monique Dusan as she encourages viewers to think biblically about race issues. You'll learn more about God's view of unity and how to live that out in the culture. Check out the five-part series by clicking the link in the episode notes. And then Ryan has mentioned critical race theory in our conversation. See our video series to empower your family to face CRT in the culture. There's a link for that as well. Now let's return to my conversation with Ryan Bomberger. Ryan, maybe you as a factivist can help me understand this. Um, You look at the progress from their perspective, the LGBT community over the last 50 years, very effective. I mean, their ability to identify the problem, know that most people didn't resonate with their message, and then how do we go about winning the emotional uh, support of the American people? And I think you'd have to, as a factivist, say they accomplished a lot of territory over the last 50 years, amazingly so, and uh, yet at the expense of order and some things that work well, obviously, like God's natural law. And I I presume, I think rightly, that God's truth cannot be covered up forever. You can cover it up for a while, but it continues to emerge. And I think that's going to be true in human sexuality. I don't think you can uh, try to cover it with something other than what God intended, which is male and female, his image put into us. You're tinkering with the very core creator of the universe in that regard. And I don't think he's going to be mocked over uh, centuries. Maybe for a few decades they'll get away with it. But how do you see that, first of all, playing out and their success? And again, how do we educate and inform people about God's plan, which is better than any other plan? There's a lot in that. Yes, there is. I mean, first of all, their, their strategy has been amazing. Their patience has been amazing. Instead of just, you know, fighting a particular battle, they've been fighting all kinds of battles and a lot of stuff behind the scenes and have never given up. And just simple things or seemingly simple things of just somewhat changing the language, even, you know, taking the word gay, for instance, you know, where that means happy, <laughs> joyous right. and, and take and seizing that. And now we're seeing the the mangling of of language entirely. But it's been a brilliant strategy a long haul sort of strategy. And I will say too, as someone who studied marketing, as someone who crafts messaging all the time, the most brilliant marketing ever. Yeah. I mean, the whole co-opted colors of the rainbow, you you couldn't have asked for better branding yeah. than that. Of course, they're kind of messing it up now, trying to combine transgender, that whole movement and everything together. It's, it's but anyway, it, it's such brilliant marketing and their patience has been amazing and forming these allies along the way and also just slightly twisting and contorting scripture you know to justify you know their ideology and Christians falling for it that's amazing to me it shows you that we don't know the word the way we should know the word and in that regard i think one of the things too is the way that they have won sympathy from the general population i mean you look at most of the pre obergerfell data, you might have about 2.5 to 3.5% of the population that would identify as gay. And that's a small number. 
yet they have garnered so much support from those that sympathize with them. And if you remember, the early arguments were, um, you know, we can't see each other in the hospital, the person I love, my significant other. If we live together, I won't get any of that person's property if they should die. It's not being treated like regular marriage. That was kind of the zone in which that sympathy was garnered. And then when people felt like, well, we're in a pluralistic society, we as Christians can't tell the culture what to do. The Lord says, you know, judge one another, but don't judge the world. But inside the church, you know, judge each other. So we have all that playing through our heads that is it appropriate for us to have a heavy hand with people that don't claim to be Christian, right? right? And so with all that backdrop, then it became, no, 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 not only did we win these things, now you are forced to be open to an LGBT lifestyle and never to speak ill of it. Right. I mean, that's now where we're at, right? Where right. it may be criminalized if you begin to speak harshly from their perspective about the truth. It's, it's not even just, hey, we're here and we're allowed to celebrate ourselves. It's the, like you said, it's you have to celebrate it, you have to promote it, you have to participate in it. And of course, in our public schools, they are indoctrinating our children to embrace all things LGBTQ. I mean, starting in kindergarten, talking about ridiculous. break, they, they had this, this, this push called break the binary for kindergartners. Yeah. Can they just worry about their primary colors? Right. <laughs> Can they worry about play instead of this, this insanity? And so it's gone so overboard. And it's really hard. You have to distinguish between the LGBT activism and the person who is struggling with sexual brokenness. Yeah and loving that person and wanting wholeness and healing for that person, but understanding that we have an insidious form of activism that is trying to actually wreck the framework on how society works. Well, and I would say, I mean, when you look at that landscape, the recruitment of what they're doing is an issue as well, because they're taking normal children, and I mean binary normal children, what little boys do to play with little boys and little girls with little girls, and who's got the cooties, I mean, that is kind of the normal thing at that age that you don't really identify that closely because there's no hormonal push right. until you're through puberty. And then all of a sudden, oh, girls are kind of cute and I better take a shower today because right. I stink, right? That's what boys will say. Yes. And I, you know, for me, the recruitment factor is they're getting in to kindergarten, first, second grade to say, don't you like other little boys better than little girls? That means you may have a sexual desire for them. I mean, that is dangerous stuff. So now morally, these governments, state governments, local governments, schools, school administrators, school counselors, who are also indoctrinated in this area, are taking these kids without parental consent to counselors, to medical professionals. And because third grader Susie feels closer to Julie than she does to Jerry, right? right? And then all of a sudden now they've trapped these kids. My question will be, 20 years from now, will there, there be like a huge tobacco-style lawsuit by these kids who are now 20 and 30-something that are totally devastated for the rest of their lives sexually because they took enhancers or inhibitors and did surgeries at the request of school administrators and counselors? Wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, yeah. And those stories are starting to come out now. 
Yes, detransitioner stories. Detransitioner. Because, I mean, they can go to Planned Parenthood. This is a new revenue stream, by the way, for Planned Parenthood. Hormone therapy, I'm putting it in quotes, because it's carcinogenic drugs that are dangerous for the body. They reduce your bone density and, and all there are the actually, things that are... <laughs> this is an important piece. There Actually, there are no drugs to do this. The dr These drugs that we're talking about are really intended for prepubescent kids medically where they're starting puberty at six, seven years old way too early, right. and these drugs are used to inhibit them until they get to natural puberty age. Right. Then they stop taking that drug and their body catches up. Yeah. But they're using these off-shelf drugs, so to speak, to apply to other kids who just don't want to be the boy or don't want to be the right. girl. So they're not even really FDA approved or uh, used the intent of the drug isn't used in that way, in the right. right way. And it's not medically guided either. So Planned Parenthood even says on their own website that you don't have to have any kind of physician supervision, that they can give you these drugs on the same day. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is devastating. This is, I mean, we see the repercussions of the sexual revolution from the 60s, for instance, and, and 70s. We see the aftermath of that. What in the world? Even, even five, ten years from now will be the aftermath of this current sexual revolution. But people have to keep in mind, this is all very much a Marxist strategy. People don't understand that a lot of these elements that are being taught in public schools are, stem from queer theory, which is a derivative of critical theory, which is all rooted in Marxism. And what were two of the main goals of Marxism? To abolish um, religion and to abolish the family. And so when you hear in these public schools where these teachers and counselors can take kids off campus and get them an abortion, get them, you know, these hormone blockers and this hormone therapy, well, it's the constant severing of the relationship between parent and child. Mm. And people need to understand that this is a deeply Marxist ideology because your child does not belong to you. And right. we've heard this expressed recently by some politicians. Your child doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the collective. No, God gave us the responsibility of the children in our family, whether biological or adopted. They are our primary responsibility. We are their primary teacher, and we should be their primary influencer. So when you look at that theme, degradation of the family, I mean the onslaught, and the U.S., I would say decades ago, kind of led what that family could be and what it looks like and what it delivers when it's healthy. Uh, not perfectly. But generally, what two-parent intact families deliver in terms of stability, education, success of a child, there's nothing that competes with it. All the social science supports the fact that a child does the best when they're in an intact mom and dad household, right. period. And then you have this onslaught over the last decades to where we are now the leading nation in single-parent structure, family structure. We lead the world. Yes in that structure. And then you look at the percentage. I think the, the data was somewhere around the 60s or 70s, about 78% of families were intact biological mom and dad. Today it's down to 22%. That's, that's crazy. It, it, they've achieved their goal is the point. The nuclear right. family is fighting tooth and nail just to hang on. And in that regard, how do we reassert the benefits? I mean, are they so blind they don't, they don't care about the data. They just want control of your kids for political power, for other power purposes. Yeah, a lot of that is happening. I mean, that's why we have this whole redefinition of family, that any family, they're all equal or they're not. The outcomes, especially, it's interesting in light of all the talk about equity, <laughs> the outcomes are not equal 
for families of different types. The intact family, married mother and father, do provide the best environment for a child to flourish. And yet you have this heavy attack on what family even means. I mean, even Black Lives Matter, they want to dismantle the Western, you know, concept of a nuclear family. But why? Especially in the black community where, you know, fatherlessness is 72%. What are you going to, how much more can you dismantle that? And that is the cause of all of these negative consequences. And it's not to say, look, my wife was a single mom for two years. It is not to diminish single parents. I know a lot of them do everything they can. But... God never designed a woman to be both mother and father, nor a father to be both mother and father, that there is a reason why he designed family the way it should be. And as Christians, it's not that we ignore that there are there's single parenting, obviously, but we have to hold up the ideal. I mean, children who grow up in single female-led homes, for instance, are five times more likely to grow up in poverty. Yeah. That has devastating effects. All family structures are not equal. And if we don't, I mean, social science backs us up and scripture foundationally tells us, and we've known this for a long time, here is the ideal. Here's what God's ideal is for us. And if we ignore that, we're going to continue to see the deterioration in, in so many different facets of American life. And for, as a father of four, it, it breaks my heart when I see children needlessly suffering because the adults refuse to accept basic facts about right. hu- the human condition. Let me ask you this question because I hear this so often about the, the, the West's creation of the nuclear family, but I think I'm reading it in Matthew, a Jewish-oriented document, right, book. Right. In Matthew, Jesus is saying uh, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. Mm-hmm. Didn't say the village. <laughs> I mean, it says the two shall become one, and this is Jesus saying this. So why, why do we have this like hyper-academic emphasis that the West created the nuclear family? Because I've traveled the world. I've been to 70 countries. There's pretty much nuclear family everywhere we go, whether it's in China, Asia, or Africa, or wherever we're at. There is typically a mom and a dad. Some countries, there's uh, polygamy, but it's limited, and it was in the Old Testament, polygamy. And always disastrous. Right. It's not the order. Um, so again, help me understand that. I, didn't, I, I don't study it the way you do. Why, why does Western European uh, tradition, why do we get the rap for creating the nuclear family? It's a, it's a scientific sort of uh, arrogance where you have these peer-reviewed studies where they're saying, oh, look, all these other things are equal, and it's just the, you know, the American ideal. No, it is, it's the human ideal. And you can look throughout history. It, it doesn't surprise me. After we started, my wife and I started the Radiance Foundation, we noticed that all these medical associations, all these, these federal agencies that report on all these different issues, they're highly politicized. Many times they're not interested in basic truths. I mean, there are so many things that are put out there, um, like, you know, we came up with the nuclear family. No, God did a long time ago. And guess what? Every, as you mentioned, these, these social science studies actually show yeah. the, the benefit of that kind of structure. Yeah, they always do better. And, you know, it, family is a struggle no matter what the formation is. I come from a single-parent mom household. I mean, I lost my dad. And... Uh, you know, it was tough, but you can get through. And uh, I do want to make that encouragement for all the single parents out there, both mothers and fathers. 
Let me wrap in this way, in, in the direction as we're winding up here, because it's easy to highlight the, the stupidity of what we see, the duplicity of what we see, the hypocrisy of what we see, the flat-out denial lying of factivism, <laughs> as you call it. Um, where do we go? What do we do? How do we keep our wits about us? How do we keep our faith intact when things seemingly don't look like they're going the right direction? How do we not lose our spiritual mind? And then how do we go about reaching people for Christ, convincing the culture that this is the best way, that you don't have to be afraid of God, He cares for you, He loves you, and do that with a level head and a loving heart so that those that might be pulled in His direction will be. Right. As Christians, we have to stop looking through the the broken lens of culture. It's always going to distort our view. We have to constantly look through the breakthrough filter of Christ. And when we do that, we see people differently, we see situations differently, and we act and react differently. I love the book of James for so many reasons, but it says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And that's not easy. And we feel in our, in our culture, I have to do something grand. No, actually, you can just speak into one person's life. But if you're not speaking, you don't even have the opportunity to be the doer of the word. And so I just want to encourage people. It is, it's so hard. It is. I know. Trust me. You know, the work my wife and I do, not exactly the most thankful sort of work. But I know in the end, on the other side of heaven, um, we're going to see how God was able to speak through us and to, and to work through us because we were willing to be uncomfortable we are willing to be called names. People, honestly, I was asked at a conference, well, what do you do when people call you names when you do this or that? And I said, just get over it. Yeah. So what? You know, Scripture says we're going to be hated for his name's sake. And my, my encouragement is that, so what if you're hated? Love anyway. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good call, and that's what we all need to be thinking. And again, it's just hard at times because we battle within ourselves between our own flesh and our desire to correct and to be right and to judge versus leaving room for God to do all those things and to try to love them. I think it's going to continue to be our big battle, how we lay our lives down, because it's so counterintuitive. But that's exactly what Christ calls us to do, and you and your wife are doing it so well. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jim. Wow, that is so powerful what Ryan said about looking through the breakthrough filter of Christ and being doers of the word. Our witness to a broken culture is both how we speak the truth and how we live the truth. And that's at the core of the Refocus podcast. Ryan has helped us to break through some of the cultural noise that can cloud our minds if we're not grounded in spiritual truth. One of the things I do when I'm meeting with someone who's hostile to the Christian faith is just to try and remain calm. That's, that's a victory right there. We're both sinners, and I need to remember that the person in front of me can be saved through grace in Christ. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. So we've got to keep that attitude in mind. In fact, it reminds me when uh, Focus launched uh, foster adoption efforts here, uh, probably our biggest antagonist in Colorado Springs was John Weiss, who owns uh, the independent newspaper here in town. And uh, it's got pretty good circulation. I think it's 300,000 or so. So it's uh, very popular with folks. And I remember sitting down to have coffee, and I'm so grateful that he called. And we went to a local coffee shop, sat down, and he just said, Jim, I didn't know anything that good, the foster care stuff, would ever come out of focus. 
And I laughed. I remember saying, John, you just don't know what we do. And, uh, you know, I talked to him about marriage counseling, uh, counseling parents to do a better job with their kids. And that was really good. And I can remember the funny part of this is uh, a few months later, John awarded Focus the Claim to Shame Award, which is an annual event they do. It's kind of a black tie event. Well, nobody has ever shown up for that uh, acceptance. (laughs) And we had a couple of guys on staff. They came up with the idea, uh, Gary and Rajiv, and they went down and accepted the Shame Award. Now, the funny thing about that story is, no one's ever shown up, so they've never actually created the trophy. Everybody else got trophies for their awards, but nobody has ever claimed the shame awards, so they were a little befuddled on what to do. But it all ended in good friendship, and uh, that's just another way to crack the door open to somebody's hard heart. We know there's some ideology in the culture that doesn't align with Scripture. <laughs> Imagine that. But I do believe God's Spirit can break through those barriers that divide us and give us opportunities to share Uh, alternatives through the love of Christ. And it's not our goal to win them. Our goal is to at least put some thoughtfulness into their day. And oftentimes we can become more than a speed bump. We can become, because of our attitude, a wall. So in other words, I don't want to be that impediment that keeps someone from coming to Christ through my bad attitude or snarkiness, whatever it might be. I want to get out of the way so God's Spirit can do the work. And I think the best contribution we make is cracking open a person's heart, kind of cracking the paradigm of what a person might think of us, the caricature of what it means to be a Christian. If we can do that, I think the Holy Spirit has an entree into that person's life. To that end, uh, let me encourage you to get a copy of Ryan Bomberger's book from us called Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong. It'll help equip you with truth to lovingly engage with others in the culture about human equality, life issues, and civil rights. And if you appreciate what we're doing here on Refocus, please support the effort to equip you to share God's truth and engage respectfully with the broken world. And when you donate to the podcast with a gift of any amount, we'll send you a copy of Ryan's book to say thank you. Okay, let's go to the inbox segment where I get to hear from you. This one is from Dave. Hey, Jim, I've been talking with my cousin who's attending a secular university right now, and she claims that Christians are intolerant because they're resistant to new ideas like gay marriage. How can I respectfully talk to her about the truth without seeming intolerant? Dave, this is good. It makes me smile because I'm thinking when I was in college, yeah, all the new ideas. And it's kind of typical for somebody to think that our Christian ethic is just simply an idea. That's the whole distinction. It's not an idea. These are hardcore foundational truths in the way that God has constructed the universe and certainly how he created human beings. You know, uh, I had a guest on the broadcast, Kevin Thompson, and he did something for me, and I shared this even with my sons because it's so clarifying, uh, that there's you know kind of three lanes in life, your lane, the other person's lane, and God's lane. And as I talked to him about the cultural conflicts, this one uh, was right there. When we look at sexual ethics, as Christians particularly, we don't own the definition. God owns that definition. He said he created uh, human beings in his image and that he created them male and female and that the two shall become one through marriage. This is his definition. This is not a Western cultural phenomenon. This is not a Western cultural idea. 
as uh, your cousin might suggest, this is core truth. This is the responsibility God owns. Does that mean that people don't have dysphoria in that regard? No, we understand that. We hear that. We see that. But we're saying generally the uh, human ethic on human sexuality should be rooted in Scripture because that's where we find truth. And those are just discussions you're going to have to have. And it would be interesting to kind of talk her into a place of what she defines as absolute truth. And I'm guessing she's going to have a hard time doing that. But as a Christian, we do believe in those absolute truths, and you can speak with confidence and in kindness. Um, Be respectful and ask your cousin those questions about why he or she believes Christians are intolerant. And frankly, we can't defend people that have expressed that kind of view. But one additional point I'd make, uh, you know, when a person in junior high tries to play Mozart, we don't uh, become critical of Mozart's music. It's the student who isn't playing it well. And sometimes we don't play the gospel music well as we walk out our own faith. Thanks again, Dave, for that great question. And I'm going to send you my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. I think it'll help you approach others with a humble and respectful attitude where you find different worldviews colliding. Now, if you have a question for me, uh, click on the link I've provided there. You'll find instructions to leave a voicemail. And if I've read your question on the podcast, I'll send you a copy of my book. I hope you've enjoyed Refocus with Jim Daly. Be sure to like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for an engaging conversation with a young woman who, in her teens, tried to transition to live as a boy, but then soon after, deeply regretted her decision. 19-year-old Chloe Cole warns young people and their parents about the many dangers of the transgender movement. My advice to parents is... We're in a world with a very rough culture right now. They're going to learn about this at some point. So it's up to you. It's your responsibility to equip them with the stability and the tools that they need to recognize to distinguish between fantasy and reality and know when somebody is trying, is attempting to manipulate them. Don't miss it on Monday, January 29th, here on Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.